You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome to the Interactome. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Interactome. Uh, I'm Natalie, I am one half of your hosts for this week. Um, our other host is Lauren. Lauren, if you want to give a, say hello to the people. Hi everyone, uh, this is Lauren. I'm very excited about this uh, episode. Our guest today is a dear friend of mine. We met in 2019 at, while we were both interning at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. I was a science writer. He was a scientist. Um, I have long admired the work that he has done, and I'm so excited for all the Interactome listeners to meet him. So without further ado, my dear friend, Ronnie. Thanks, Natalie. Um, so I'm Ronnie Abloff, your Rosenzweig. I'm a postdoctoral research with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Um, Although I'd like to preface with all views that I say on here are my own and don't represent my organization necessarily. Uh, so going back to how I met Natalie, we met at NASA Goddard Space and Flight Center when we were both interns. I'm an earth scientist by training, more specifically a hydrologist. So I study the water cycle over the terrestrial systems of the earth. Um, and I got into hydrology Maybe as a young, curious kid, I grew up along a river at Guadalupe River State Park in Texas, exploring, um, just roaming around and became curious about how water flows, why, why there's more or less at given times. Um, so I guess that's my scientist's origin story of being interested in, in the water cycle in general. Yeah. Great, and maybe if you could jump in a little bit uh, about the research that you just conducted. Yeah, thanks for that. So um, recently in April, uh, we published a paper in the journal Environmental Research Letters that looks at relationships between climate and fire in the Western United States. And specifically, we were looking at these relationships over snow reliance areas. And we were Primarily interested. Could you, sorry, could yeah. you explain quickly what is snow reliance? When you say snow reliance, what does that mean? Yeah, quite simply put, that just means area that areas that have snowfall um, at oh, okay. some point in their history. So, and, and any yeah. places that have really received any significant amount of snow in the past forty years were included in our analysis. Yeah, so we were interested in looking at the relationships between climate and fire, how closely are climate and fire related over the previous 40 years, and then how closely is the pre-fire season climate related to the fire season activity. And the reason we were interested in, in this is because although it's important to understand that fire activity changes from year to year based off of the climate, 
if we're able to explain that information before the fire season, then that gives us predictive abilities and that can be extremely useful for managers um, of, of forests and of, uh, for firefighting agencies. Yeah, so when we were looking into this, we used different types of machine learning methods to relate climate to fires. So what these methods do is essentially you feed a model what the input and output is. In this case, our input is what was the winter and spring climate? And then the output is how much fire is there in the Western United States during the summer peak fire season? And then what this model outputs is essentially a formula that relates these two things. And we found that we're able, yeah, Natalie. Yeah, I guess I'm just curious, a um, little backtracking on what what is machine learning? How How does... How is math applicable to uh, like fire seasons and, and snow dependency and things like that? I'm, I'm interested in, in that angle a little bit. Yeah, great question. It's so it's related in many ways, both physically and statistically. I was looking at it from a statistical approach, which is essentially looking at historical records of what the climate is and then what the following fire activity was. So using those statistical relationships in the past, we look to see if we're able to generalize those relationships and make predictions on unseen data or information that hasn't occurred yet. And that's the forecasting framework. So we use those previous relationships to establish formulas that relate climate to fire and then use those to actually predict what the fire activity will be. I have a question about the formulas. So kind of what goes into them? Like what aspects of the climate um, specifically do you look into? Yeah, so the machine learning method is actually sort of a lazy method for me as a scientist where I simply tell the model this is how much it rained, this is how hot it was, this is how dry the atmosphere is, um, this is how much snow is on the land surface during the springtime. And then I ask the model to tell me how much fire there is. And, I, and it trains essentially learning the relationships of the historical record, um, learns how those two are related, the, the, the group of climate indices I just mentioned, as well as the coming fire activity. And then it essentially gives me a formula for how the inputs and outputs are related. And then I just can lazily use that formula and uh, tell it again what the climate is or what the climate conditions are, essentially what the weather has been throughout the winter and spring. And then it tells me how much fire is expected during the summer. So we were using these methods um, and the first step was we needed to establish that the winter and spring climate can be closely related to summer fire activity if we're going to use it to predict. If they, if these two uh, things aren't related, then we wouldn't be able to make any predictions with them. It would, it would be a useless model, essentially. So we quantified how closely these two things relate, essentially looking at how, uh, how well our model is able to predict on unseen data. And we found that more than half of the variability in summer fire season activity can be explained by the uh, preceding climate conditions that are summarized through the uh, winter and spring period. And because there is this strong and robust relationship between the two, we decided that this model is able to provide useful information about what the coming summer fire activity may, may be. 
Um, and we also found and it, another interesting thing we found with this model is that not only is it able to predict what the year to year variability of fire activity is based off of how hot and dry the spring period, the winter and spring periods are, but also our model is able to successfully predict that there's a significant increasing trend in wildfire burned area in the western U.S. over the recent decades. Um, so this is quite interesting, at least from understanding how the climate is relating to these growing fire patterns that we've seen um, in recent years. I think one thing that you said that really struck me was you're looking at winter and spring to predict events that are going to happen in the summer. Why not look at the summer? Yeah, great question. So whenever we do actually include this summer climate conditions in our model, the model improves quite a bit. Um, the idea was we were going to withhold the summer information to see if we're able to forecast that summer fire activity before it occurs. Um, so if we, I guess in, in some cases, if, if we cheat and tell the model what the summer climate is, it's able to more accurately predict the fire activity because there's this very tight coupling between how hot and dry the summer conditions are and how much fire burned area there has been over the recent decades. Um, but whenever we withhold this information, um, although the model performance isn't as strong, there's still robust relationships between the winter and spring climate and summer fire activity and that we're able to provide some useful information before the fires occur. And so the reason why we're actually able to have useful information before the summer is essentially the conditioning of the climate in these antecedent seasons set the stage for how hot and dry summers will be. And this is based off of a property that uh, is considered uh, by many as land surface memory. And it's essentially how long the land surface remembers the moisture it receives from the atmosphere precipitation. Um, so once precipitation falls on the land surface, it doesn't just disappear immediately before it goes back to the dynamic water cycle. It stays on the land surface for a while. For instance, when the precipitation falls as rain, the, the liquid water gets into the soil. It stays in the soil for a while before it can rejoin in, into the dynamic water cycle, either through the rivers or evaporating back into the atmosphere. Um, also, whenever precipitation falls as snow, snowpack can build through the winter and spring period. And it stays as a, a, a solid water form throughout that period, and then eventually is released as liquid or gaseous water in the summer period um, back to the atmosphere or to streams and rivers. So essentially how uh, moist the land surface is in the winter and spring um, plays a role into the summer conditions because the land surface essentially has this memory property of the water that dictates how hot and dry the summer may be. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is liquid or water will accumulate. When you say remember, you don't mean consciously, right? The land, I mean, there's no mind, there's no conscious being there, but the water is, is soaked in and it is stored there. And the storage of this water can help mitigate fires because it keeps the keeps the land from getting too hot, too dry, fires from easily sparking, or it makes it, it, makes it more difficult? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. So getting into, I guess, how a moisture land surface 
makes an area less flammable. It's it, it, there, there's some physics to that. One is it, it promotes a cooler Yay, landscape. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll I'll try to keep the physics to a, to simplicity because it, it it is actually relatively simple. Um, whenever there's moisture on the land, and then there's incoming solar radiation, a lot of the sun's energy is is used to change the phase of the water or change it from a liquid to a gas and evaporate it back up. So that's a lot of energy that isn't being used to change the temperature, which really makes the land surface hotter. So a moisture land surface will promote, uh, will uh, favor cooler temperatures that are less flammable. And also, whenever there's moisture in the vegetation and soil, and let's say you have an ignition, for that ignition to spread um, and cause a wildfire, or you can think of a wildfire as a series of ignitions where you have a single flame and then it has to catch another tree or an adjacent tree on fire. Now, if that tree has a lot of water in it, then first a lot of energy needs to be paid from the tree that's on fire to, the, to its neighboring trees to dry it, and that's through the evaporative process. And then once that energy payment is made, then it can be used to raise the temperature of the tree until it reaches its combustion temperature and catches on fire. And then that series of ignitions continues throughout the forest. So if you imagine all the trees have uh, significant moisture in them, it's a much more energy intensive process, which makes the forest a lot less flammable. Um, and that slows the spread of wildfire. And, we had, and, and the tight relationship that we've found between uh, climate and fire in the western U.S. over the recent decades is essentially saying that the flammability of the area is is the main guider of how much fire there has been rather than other factors that definitely can play a role. That's really interesting um, and really well explained. Thank you. Um, I had a question because it, it seems that, I mean, your prediction obviously um, I don't know if you said what percentage, um, like positivity rate or like how uh, accurate it is, but do, is it a percentage of accuracy that you, your model has? Yeah, model so, has? so essentially there's um, one of the more common metrics that are used to evaluate a model is uh, the simple correlation coefficient or many know it as R. It, it, it's how two different time series relate and we were finding a high correlation between the acres burned that we're predicting versus what's being observed by satellites. And okay. so the, tight the high correlation between the two is indicating that um, what we're predicting has a level of accuracy. And specifically, we're finding with the winter and spring climate, we were explaining around 50 to 60% of the variability of fire activity, um, okay. only yeah. using that information. I was wondering, are you able, I guess I don't know enough about like how accurate weather predictions are like from the spring towards the summer, but do you imagine that you can couple your predictions with like temperature predictions um, to like have a, a more accurate idea of what's going to happen? Yeah, this is, that's, a, that's a great question. We're looking into that as, as the next steps in developing a more accurate forecasting system. So other colleagues of mine at NCAR are using physical models that predict what the temperature is in the Western U.S. or the U.S. as a whole, as well as uh, 
the precipitation patterns that we haven't seen yet. So they're, they're forecasting the future temperature and precipitation, which from my perspective, from modeling fire is extremely useful because right now I'm withholding yeah. any summer information from my model when I'm making a forecast. But if I allow it to use forecasts of what the temperature and precipitation are, its accuracy is likely to increase. So yeah. that's definitely a next step in this. We, we didn't do that in the recent study because we were, one of our primary goals was to establish just how closely related are only the winter and spring climate with the summer fire. Um, but mm -hmm. as we move forward with a more, I guess, operational hat on, on being able to predict as accurately as possible, uh, we'll, we'll be looking to incorporate that information to our models. A scientist's work is never done. <laughs> True words were never spoken. <laughs> so wondering what, you know, you're talking about what the next steps are going to be and other colleagues of yours and, and what they're working on. Maybe we could just walk through the results of the paper that's going to be be published you know how much and and correct me if i'm wrong but don't the results predict the upcoming you know where we're recording this right now in uh june 2022 so the fire season um is approaching if not you know we're already there um what what is your prediction and what did the study we're find? working on a paper that's going to also have information about what we're forecasting for this summer and in fact NCAR recently uh, released uh, a news article on on this prediction that's been picked up by some media sources so we're, we're estimating that around 3.8 million acres in the western U.S. will uh, ca catch on fire which is above average and since the 1984 satellite record that we're looking at this will be the eighth largest in the record, so definitely above average, but not as large as the recent 2020 and 2021 fire seasons, which were uh, which were massive. And that doesn't necessarily mean that 2022 can't reach those extremes, but our prediction is suggesting that the winter and spring climatic conditioning um, isn't uh, isn't favoring a more severe season than those recent extremes. But still severe, right? But still, yeah. yes, but but still definitely severe relative to a historical record, definitely. So I just have a question because it's clear that, um, you know, climate change uh, plays a role in um, the severity and um, kind of intensity of fires. And so I was wondering um, how that's kind of been playing into your studies um, and how you're um, looking at that. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. There, there's definitely a few factors that are playing into the severity of these recent fire seasons that we're seeing, and, and climate change is, is a big contributor. Um, over the, since, since the 1980s, the Western U.S. has been getting both hotter and drier, categorized by a series of different climate metrics. Um, one of the most important climate metric for its relationship with fire is what's called vapor pressure deficit. That's essentially just how dry the lower atmosphere is. And there's been different climate change attribution studies to how vapor pressure deficit has been affected by CO2 emissions. And it's found that um, the anthropogenic signal for the CO2 forcing that we're giving to the atmosphere is 
resulting in a drier lower atmosphere that uh, essentially dries out the land surface at faster rates and then makes the land surface more flammable. Um, so that climate change is definitely contributing towards uh, the flammability of the land surface by promoting hotter and drier conditions in the western U.S., particularly during the summer periods where the warming rate is faster. Um, so from my perspective, I'm simply looking at how the historical records are, are relating and then trying to predict them. The climate change is in the the climate change signals are in the observations. So um, I'm inherently incorporating that information to the models without necessarily needing to explicitly model or account for it. Um, however, other modeling studies that have been conducted over the recent decade have been looking at physical models that help understand how much um, human contributions are to the drying and heating of the western U.S. and finding that it's definitely a, a very important factor. Thank you for that explanation. And you mentioned earlier that you mentioned earlier fire management and firefighters and people who are are on the front lines of battling these massive forest fires. We've seen it in the news. We've seen the videos. Um, wondering how this technology and this insight, this this ability to predict with machine learning could influence land management in the future. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So right now, our models are simply predicting the broad scale burn area, or essentially how much fire there will be in the Western US. Yeah. So currently what that is useful for, or could be useful for, is, is res resource allocation. Each year the US government spent, generally spends over a billion dollars um, towards suppressing these fires so they don't destroy the uh, homes, people, cities in, in, in their paths. Um, so understanding what resources would be required to fight the coming fire season is directly dependent on how much fire there will be. So that's one way that these can be that these types of models can be useful. And we're also looking at improving our models to not only predict a broad scale burn area, but more specifically, which areas are going to be the higher risk. And the more accurately we can do that, um, the faster response time uh, th there can be to these wildfires, which can be quite important in terms of containing it earlier. Um, yeah. How could you determine where these fires could potentially take place? Is this something you can do now or is this something down the road that your team will work on? Yeah, this is, this is something that other organizations are currently doing, we'd be looking at doing it with a different method that may perhaps be able to do it at finer scales or with different levels of accuracy. But currently this is already being done and highlighting which parts of the um, land service are gonna be at the highest risk. And, and that's largely about um, what the, how, how flammable the land is or how hot and dry the land is in combination with what the fire weather is looking like in the area, essentially the wind speed and the humidity of the area in understanding what the potential is for the area to ha host a wildfire. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I'm sure will be like really important. And yeah, as with any kind of science and research, as you kind of make advances, um, it's able to play a bigger role. Um, the question I was wondering is um, if you have tried, if your model, if you can apply your model to other areas, so other areas of the U.S., other areas that experience um, 
high fire activity um, or uh, if you've tried that or not. Um, so we haven't tried that actually yet. Is We've primarily been interested in the Western U.S. as the Western U.S. is in a particularly historically significant period in terms of both drought and fire. There's been some recent uh, publications over the past couple years that have put the fire and drought uh, in the Western U.S. in a historical context looking at tree ring records and essentially finding that the drought that's been taking place in the Western U.S. over the past couple decades is looking like it's the most severe in a 1,200-year record that we have. Um, and that's leading also to historical significance in fire that's also being seen through the long-term paleo records. And so because we're in this historically significant period in the Western U.S., I've been zoomed in on that primarily. Okay. How could these droughts in impact the water reserve memory of the land? If, if you're looking as far out as winter and there are these intense droughts, maybe how does that play together? If it does, if it doesn't, if I'm thinking of this wrong. The, let's say the land surface receives precipitation, either in rain or snow. How long can the land surface hold on to that? Um, it's a real question for the climate conditioning between the winter and spring to the summer. And the longer it can, the land surface can hold on to that water, uh, the less flammable it will be come the summertime. So whenever you have higher temperatures in a drier, lower atmosphere, the land surface will have a shorter memory because higher temperatures promote earlier snow melt as well as faster rates of evaporation. And also a drier, lower atmosphere will have a higher demand for the water from the land surface. It has a bigger capacity of water it can take back up. Um, so both of those components of the drying and heating can definitely play a role in, this, in, in the land surface memory. And then again, that plays the role in the summer fire potential. Another thing that you, this is, and this is something that I'm, I'm particularly interested in. You're a, you're an earth scientist by training. You focus on hydraulics, but this project was not all hydraulicists, was not just all earth scientists. There were, it seems to me that there are a lot of different disciplines involved in this project, whether it's computation through machine learning, physicists of the water, um, Maybe what, what's that like for you as, as an established scientist working with people of different disciplines? It's exciting. Uh, I, I've learned a whole lot about a niche and to be able to work with other people that have learned a whole lot about other niches is always an exciting thing. Um, we like to know a lot about a little, but also um, a little about a lot. And I get to learn more whenever I work with experts in other disciplines. And I, it expands my understanding of, of how my discipline may relate to, to others, um, either from a societal perspective, from an environmental perspective, and um, just, just getting a better understanding of, I guess, the system's view of, of things. So work, working with different scientists, such as atmospheric scientists, um, other types of hydrologists that may specialize in different areas. For example, there's people who are, are, are specifically snow scientists that know a massive amount about snow. Um, and, and, and just learning different 
tokens of knowledge from from these collaborators is is always an exciting thing. Yeah, that's one thing I think about in in science often is it it's not just one person sitting at a lab bench doing one thing alone. It's so much collaboration and and Lauren, I bet you could even even touch on that as well. Definitely. I mean, I think uh, my favorite part of being in the lab and being in science is kind of uh, picking other people's minds, essentially, um, bouncing off ideas with people who have completely different perspectives, um, like completely different life perspectives, but also um, scientific backgrounds. I think like the way you grew up or where you grew up or um, kind of how you were conditioned to think really can influence how you approach problems um, in a scientific setting. And so it's really fulfilling to work with people of all different uh, backgrounds, scientifically and not. So I can definitely um, agree with that. It's exciting. Going back to this project, Ronnie, was there ever a time going off of also what, what Lauren said about picking people's brains who have completely different uh, perspectives in how that could kind of spark a new idea, a new angle. Was there ever a time in this in this study where you were looking at something in a in a certain way, and a colleague maybe brought uh, a new idea up to you, and you said, "Wow, that's a better or a, a fresh way of thinking of it," and it kind of revolutionized uh, where the where the study was going? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, I had read some papers and had a conversation with. A, scientist named Dr. Jeremy Littell. I think he works with the USGS. And he he has a, he, he provided me with some interesting information, I guess, of the relationship between fire and the ecosystems. Um, and there's always a discussion about how much of the growing fire activity has been related to the climate, how much of it has been related to land management, over what time scales are these important. Um, essentially, the interesting information that, that I learned was, or that, that, I, that, that I took from his papers and from talking to him was that the ecosystems that we're living in today won't necessarily be the ecosystems that our perhaps grandkids are living in. These, they, they've evolved among uh, climate a climate that's going to be different than what the eco what the future ecosystems will be they've evolved among human interactions with the ecosystem that um, may be different than how it'll be managed in the future for example current uh, over the past couple hundred years after the euro-american colonization and the indigenous displacement there's been practices of extreme fire suppression that has allowed forests to become extremely dense we know that thinning and prescribed burning can make forests less flammable um, so we may be implementing those practices more in the future as well um, essentially there's just a lot of unknown about how ecosystems will evolve in the future and and what the environment will look like and then how that will uh, play a role in what the future fire activity will look like as well. It's just a, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty with, with that as well currently, because a lot of it is up to the decisions that humans make, and often that's difficult to predict. And I guess that, that sort of relates to this era that we live in that's called the Anthropocene, where humans have control over both the climate as well as the environment that we live in. And both of those are extremely 
important in terms of how they play a role with fire. Um, so the decisions that the human that us humans make today can affect the environments that are evolving and how those environments may play a, a role in modulating the effects of a warming and drying climate is currently unknown. Um, so that was just uh, some interesting information that I learned, not necessarily from the hydrology perspective, but more from the forest and ecosystem perspective. It's a great point. And, you know, I, it really resonates what you said about, you know, coming down to the individual, you know, our day to day decisions, they do, you know, it's hard when what you're focusing on, it's, it's years and decades and probably even centuries of data you're combining into this computer and you're getting this tangible evidence. You're saying, okay, here's the answer. Other folks don't see that and they don't really, they can't apply that to, to their day-to-day life. Um, or, or excuse me, they can't see the significance of applying that kind of thought process to, to their day-to-day life. And I think that's one of the biggest issues in the climate crisis that we're seeing. Yeah, um, I have a kind of a personal question. Do you, have you found that your work, I'm not sure what work you did during your PhD or undergrad, but um, your work right now um, with um, like fire predictions, has that influenced your personal uh, day-to-day life and kind of how you, um, has it influenced your behaviors? It's influenced the way that I, view a changing climate for sure. So it's definitely influenced my thoughts and I guess thoughts influence actions. Knowing how exactly those thoughts connect to my actions can be somewhat difficult, I guess, but uh, just definitely from from understanding the, the system, it, it definitely changes the way I think about it is that in a changing climate, you, you always hear that there's these relationships between fire and climate, or at least I, always hear that and then finally getting my hands dirty with the data and performing these rigorous analyses and and then seeing this I guess firsthand it I was like wow these are really closely related yeah you're like oh it's actually true (laughs) like you know it's true and then you see it you know it's true yeah yeah but then you're like wow that that they're, they're very related, or at least they have been yeah. over the past 40 years, and they're expected to continue to be over the next 40 years. Um, so uh, see, so seeing that firsthand, I guess, has really, I guess, uh, made me realize just from, that's just from the fire perspective, but after yeah. having that type of experience with the data, it makes me feel a different way whenever I read what other researchers have discovered. And it sort of helps yeah. me understand, I guess, the significance of, of what they're publishing is, mm-hmm. is after having that sort of aha moment or ha- having many of those aha moments once, once you get your hands dirty with the data and actually have a finding and, and, and prove something to yourself, essentially, that you had already heard repetitively. And it, it helps me, I guess, really internalize these messages that other researchers are communicating the first time I read it I guess yeah (laughs) I'm sure it must really um like emphasize the urgency of um the climate crisis to you um and I was wondering if you because 
I mean, I don't work um, in like climate change research or any research um, related to like the environment. Essentially, I do um, cancer biology research. Um, And I know, you know, most of the US population or the world doesn't work directly with this kind of data. Um, So how do you think... I mean, there's a lot of work being done to kind of like get this data out there and like shared with the public so that people can really truly understand um, kind of what's going on. But do you have a personal opinion on kind of how's the best way to portray this to the general public? I wish I did. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's the million dollars. Through podcasts, question. of course. Of course. <laughs> podcasts are, are, are an extremely helpful uh, medium. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of the work that y'all and other podcasters do to bring science into the daily life of people. Because it, it, it's really important. It shouldn't be, science shouldn't be something that's just done in an ivory tower that's only done yeah. by a very small percent of the population. Um, it, yeah. it, it's something that should, uh, it's a way of thinking that is is great to really communicate to the general population and to mm-hmm. dis- discuss not only what we found, but sometimes how we discovered these findings. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's why we do this. I think that sometimes when you don't have a scientific background, it can be a little difficult to truly like grasp um the urgency or really um like be convinced by the data so yeah i'm really grateful that you're sharing uh your personal experience about this with us yeah yeah, it's definitely a pleasure too um yeah in in terms of i guess the best way to communicate right now there's there's a lot of ways that the way the climate is affecting ecosystem and health of americans and other populations around the world is being communicated i one of the most thorough ways it's being communicated is uh, through the peer-reviewed literature that's often communicated mm-hmm. in um, IPCC reports as well. Um, there's dense versions of them and then condensed versions of them for policymakers. And there's also podcasts that have scientists on to communicate this the, the research they're conducting as well as uh, news outlets I've found. Some news outlets do better than others, but news outlets can uh, that have scientists on to communicate their research um, is also an effective medium for, for that type of communication. Well, we are so happy that you joined today's episode. Again, I mentioned earlier, uh, Lauren and I have both just been looking forward to this for weeks. Um, and... This has just been really great. Maybe you could tell our listeners, you know, where they can find you. I know you're on, I know you're on Twitter. Yep. Yeah. So people can follow me on Twitter at Abolafia Ronnie. That's A-B-O-L-A-F-I-A-R-O-N-N-I-E. I often post updates on my research and try to echo other research that my colleagues are conducting as well. That's great. That's great. Um, I, I mean, I will sure be giving you a follow. Um, before we end, I do have one question for you. Um, and I just wanted to know what you're most excited about kind of moving forward, um, with your research. That's, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of exciting (laughs) things going on and I'm, I'm conducting research in a lot of areas. I have very specific snow research. I have some drought research. I have the relationship between drought and fire and I'm really fascinated in all of it. There's a lot for me to learn from 
these explorations of the data in each of these areas. And I guess overall taking a zoomed out image is, is how, how these connect and then how these, uh, how the climate systems can relate to the everyday life of people and current people and future people as well. Super exciting. You're making me want to do research. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I wish I could do research in so many different things. <laughs> I'll just have to follow your Twitter and follow along what you're doing. Great. <laughs> we, on the Interactome Twitter, we do follow Ronnie. So if you're having trouble finding him, go to at the Interactome, hit that follow button, and then find Ronnie in our following. It's a short list, so you'll be able to find it easily. Um, well, again, thank you so much. 